That will segue us into our roundtable discussion, which Dr. Gandhi and I will moderate, but many of our panelists from earlier in our symposium will contribute to our roundtable discussion. And we will start with some of the questions that are left over from the Q&As and direct those to the appropriate speaker. And anything that didn't get addressed during our Q&A will uh, hopefully get addressed during our long or our roundtable discussion. So if we could move some of those questions over for our panelists to be able to recognize, um, maybe I'll turn this over to you, Raj, if you would like to get started with the discussion and we can kind of alternate how we sure. deal with the questions. <clears throat> Happy to. So uh, let's go back to the morning session where we heard about the emergence of variants and um, the fact that in immunosuppressed individuals um, have viral persistence. And so I, I'll direct this question to Dr. Bender Ignacio. Um, and it, it's this attendees from the morning asking if you could expand upon your comment about Omicron variants and uh, immunosuppressed individuals in Africa. Any more light you can shed on that? And, and and maybe also yeah. back to your comments about equity and, and trying to get people vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have evidence from um, a number of you know, case series, a number of examples of extremely immunosuppressed um, patients who um, continue to shed um, viable SARS-CoV-2 for long periods of time for months, um, in some cases more than six months. And while we don't know that Omicron arose specifically in a person with HIV, um, you know, or actually which type of immunosuppression, the, the supposition is that when you look at the lineage on, um, on a phylogenetic tree, when you look at how Omicron arose, it sort of is a straight line back to the ancestral um, or alpha closer to, to those two versions than what was circulating at the time that it arose. And because it has so much similarity to what was circulating um, sort of, you know, almost a year before that, um, it seems as though this was one, you know, long persistent infection, probably in one or a few individuals um, for a very long time. And so again, you know, we, we can't say that this was in specifically in an individual who's immunocompromised because we don't know the first person who had um, uh, the BA1 variant. Um, but what we know is that if you just look sort of epidemiologically at where in the globe people are immunocompromised and who's at risk for um, being the type of person who could have you know, very persistent um, replication of SARS-CoV-2 in their body and looking at all forms of immunosuppression from cancer treatment to autoimmune disease being treated to HIV to transplant, um, the, the largest condition would be HIV and the largest concentration of those individuals would be in the Southern cone of Africa. Um, so, you know, so from a public health standpoint, it makes a lot of good sense. I mean, it, as well as obviously the equity, um, argument, which should be at the forefront uh, of all of our decision-making to focus on both individual health reasons for vaccination and also, um, to sort of prevent, um, uh, the development of variants by making sure that both vaccines and treatments are equitably distributed, especially to places that have a high proportion of immunocompromised people. Can I just make I'll just, yeah, yeah, please go ahead and then I'll just add one more comment. You first, John. 
Thanks, Raj. Um, so I, I, mean, I totally agree with Dr. Bender Ignacio. I, I would also say that variants can arise really all over the world, right? As we've already seen alpha from the UK and, you know, gamma from South America, you know, delta from, from Asia. And there are likely, you know, well, there are immunosuppressed patients all over the world. And, um, you know, at this point, it does seem like these variants can occur and arise um, in multiple, pretty much globally, anywhere in the globe. Um, and actually, you know, and I think that we are not, quote unquote, kind of immune to this ourselves. I mean, you remember, we've we had the California variant and then the New York variant, right? I think we just got lucky that those variants got got edged out by some of these other ones that have come along. But um, I do I do think that um, really there's no place in the world that is necessarily safe as long as there is high levels of community spread and, and infection. So I have a question for Dr. Haydar. Do, um, given your experience with prolonged viral shedding and immunocompromised patients, what do you do or recommend uh, for infection control? Yeah, what that's a fantastic question. I mean, I actually helped devise some of the infection control guidance. A lot of it is stuff we sort of learned as uh, as we began to understand that some of these immunodeficient individuals can sometimes harbor infectious virus that you can, let's say, isolate in a lab, or if you can't isolate it in the lab, you on serial sampling, you're documenting that the genome is evolving. And so clearly there's something that's actively replicating there. And so if, as soon as we began to understand this, um, I, I, I reached out to our infection prevention colleagues and highlighted the problem to them. It was around that period of time when we were writing about this, uh, Dr. Lee's group had, had just published about this and it was before the CDC had sort of um, devised any of their own guidelines. Um, and so we now have these specific tiers that are really dependent on the degree of, of uh, immunosuppression, where if you're a normal host, we just go by, you know, 10 days-ish. Um, if you're sort of mildly immunocompromised, an, an example there would be a remote kidney transplant, for example, we stop isolation at 20 days. What the conditions that we are defining as moderate to severe, these are the ones that we refer to as isolation forever, slash until you document two negative SARS-CoV-2 PCRs. It's not perfect. Um, and we had a, a lot of discussions about how to streamline this. Do we use antigen testing? Um, it's not available federally in the hospital, so we opted not to. Do we use cycle threshold testing? There wasn't really good appetite from, from the hospital system as a whole to do that. Do you lump it in with symptoms? But then there's case reports of people with minimal symptoms having protracted infection. Do you add antibody testing with it, thinking that if someone has an antibody response, maybe this RNA that you're detecting is just inert, non-replicating virus. Uh, we opted not to because it's not that simple. And we've seen people who have detectable antibody levels um, with protracted SARS-CoV-2 infection, and then they develop resistance to the monoclonals. And then we think, well, maybe the antibody we're detecting is the monoclonal, not their endogenous spike. So it's really complex. 
Um, at this stage, it's sort of accepted at our institution that this is sort of what's done for the very, very immunocompromised people. So let's say a new lung transplant, CAR-T, uh, fresh BMT, advanced HIV with a, with a really low T-cell count. They remain in isolation until you have these negative swabs, and it becomes a problem not just for inpatient policies where people can be a bit frustrated from these very long hospital stays, but also to give patients advice when they leave and when they go home and they want to get on with their lives. That's also something that is difficult. And I try to explain all this to them. And in, in my experience, most have sort of listened to me. I think they're just so, um, um, I want to say, traumatized by their experience dealing with COVID. And they don't really want to give that to, to anyone else. Uh, so I tell them, Get on with your life, but also try to do it as safely as you can. If you have to go out, wear a mask and, you know, all that stuff. Great. Raj, I'll throw it back to you. Let's go back to variants for a minute and, um, and also talk a little bit about monoclonal antibodies. We heard earlier today that the BA4 and BA5 should be susceptible to tixagivimab, silgavimab, at least based on laboratory studies. Um, obviously, also known as Evisheld, is being used for prevention. I want to ask a question about whether this should be considered for treatment. Um, maybe, Dr. Lee, you want to comment on, should there, is there a role for that particular antibody cocktail for treatment? It's not authorized, so it can't be done today, but, but should it be hmm. authorized for treatment? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think, um, Roger, referring to the recent, uh, only published uh, active three trial, which looks at Tixacavimab, uh, Sucavimab, or Evusheld for inpatient treatment. And this is, you know, the, the latest um, of a long line of studies looking at antivirals for inpatient management, um, almost all of which have come back, I would say, negative at this point, especially with the monoclonals. They've looked at Bamlanivimab, looked at Casimdevimab, looked at it. Now, I, I will say that there are subpopulations and sub-analysis that have shown some signals. For example, in the recovery study, um, individuals who are seronegative um, appeared to do better in terms of mortality with Um, And in this particular trial with Tixagavimab, the initial kind of primary outcome, which is time to sustained recovery, there was no significant difference, right? So, so the primary endpoint failed here, but they did find that mortality rates were lower in individuals, hospitalized individuals who were treated with tisagamimab. Now, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, right now, I think our, high, our hands are tied because this is not a FDA approved drug, it's just FDA authorized and only authorized in certain populations for pre-exposure prophylaxis and such. And so we can't actually use it in the hospital. Um, but I think that the data um, on mortality here is is interesting, um, and I think that it does warrant additional kind of study, and I'm sure the FDA is taking a close look at this data to see whether it should be authorized. I will also say that um, all of these inpatient studies, uh, not clear how well they are actually extrapolatable to the immunosuppressed population. Um, they really, in general, enrolled very few immunosuppressed individuals. And I, I do think that, um, you know, for the immunosuppressed patient who has chronic COVID, you know, when available, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of monoclonal antibodies for, for, uh, for hospitalized patients. I see, I see uh, Gotti there nodding his head as well. I think that, uh, you know, I don't know that, you know, we, in the, when Sotrovimab was available, that drug was available as for compassionate use. But right now we have 
hard time getting it for inpatients and, and we don't really also have access to convalescent plasma as well, even though that is um, authorized for immunosuppressed patients. So we're, our hands are tied. Um, but the active three trial, I think, did show some interesting signal with mortality and um, uh, in, in hospitalized patients. And I think the FDA still waiting on more FDA guidance. But John, John I would just add, I mean, active three, that study enrolled um, last year with earlier variants. Mm -hmm. um, is that right? And so we do have to think about the activity of the ticks. Evushel, very sorry. <laughs> um, uh, for, for, for the variants that are circulating now and, and in the future, there is. Um, uh, there are somewhat large fold, fold change um, reductions in susceptibility with the newer variants, maybe 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 less so with um, BA275 now, actually. Um, and, and, and I think there's a real balance there in terms of thinking about the drug concentrations that we're going to get um, uh, and uh, the expected clinical activity for, for current variants. So Dr. Chu, since you brought up BA 2.75, and because it's been found in California, I want one of you to comment. So can you just tell the audience what is BA 2.75? How concerned are you? And uh, what do we know about how it might respond to, um, to different treatments? So just fill us all in. So not being a virologist, um, it's, as far as I understand, a, a sublineage of BA 2. Um, it does, um, the, so, it is a variant um, where uh, bevtilovimab, actually, I think for the first time for all the variants that we've seen so far, where there does seem to be some reduction um, in susceptibility, um, but maybe not to, to a degree that would actually impact clinical activity of, of bevtilovimab. Um, and, it, uh, and it's a variant where perhaps some of the other monoclonals um, that have not been in use may actually have um, you know, gained um, activity again. Um, and so, I, you know, I think it, it's uh, it's unclear at this point how much it will kind of take over as as the dominant variant in the in the population. Um, but uh, so far, at least, I think that the therapeutics that we have um, would likely remain active. Yeah, it seems like BA two point seven five is predominantly right now in India and some, some other countries in Southeast Asia where there isn't a lot of BA.5 so far. So it's not clear yet whether it's gonna be an alka PBA.5. So the jury's still out as, uh, as Dr. Chu stated. So let's go back to the HIV population for a couple of questions and anybody can, can chime in, but I'll maybe direct the questions to uh, Dr. Bender if she's still on, Bender Ignacio, but uh, maybe Teresa also. Is there evidence of greater immunologic morbidity in people with advanced HIV? One might expect there could be some protection against some of the immunologically related um, post-COVID syndromes balanced against the risk of um, other virologic driven injury because they're not able to, because people with advanced HIV don't have such robust immune responses to other things. Um, I hope I'm uh, paraphrasing the questioner's question appropriately, but it, I, I think what we're trying to get at is people with advanced immunosuppression don't have robust inflammatory immune responses to other things. Could we might see, um, and 
amelioration of some of the immunologic comorbidities associated with COVID? I unfortunately don't think so. I, I mean, I think this was a hypothesis um, early in the pandemic that it might not be, that we might not see the severity, but because we see uh, a trend towards increasing severity as the CD4 count goes down, it's hard to, to say that we would see less severity among the most immunosuppressed folks. Those are exactly the folks that we're seeing um, in the ICU or had been seeing in the ICU um, uh, earlier on. And, um, as well as people that have, for example, low CD4 count plus advanced age. So it seems to be that being immunologically vulnerable increases vulnerability for both severe um, COVID outcomes. And then from the small amount of data that we have about post-acute COVID um, that potentially, again, people with sort of more uh, immune exhausted phenotypes or lower CD4 count um, might be at, at higher risk of, of um, long COVID um, sequela as well. And Dr. Evering, is that your thought as well for people with HIV and long COVID? Yeah, I absolutely agree uh, with everything that Dr. Bender Ignacio said. And also will point out that there are many potential mechanisms um, that could lead to long COVID and, um, and over-stimulated over or immune activation is just one. Um, but everything that she said, I, I would agree with. Great. Um... Are there any new data, this could be directed to almost anyone, on the risk of um, herpes zoster activation following vaccination with, for COVID-19? Anyone had experience with that? Not hearing a lot of positive responses yeah. there, so. Okay, Raj, you wanna yield another question? I wanted to put a question to Dr. Chenong around TPOX. Um, you described some of the considerations that go into um, making a decision as to whether to prescribe it. it. It's very, very onerous to prescribe because of the way um, it's being handled through an IND. This is really just your asking for your perspective. Is there enough evidence for TPOX that it really should be made available through expanded access or some other less um, onerous mechanism or, or does it still need to be studied? What, what's your perspective on that, Greg? My feeling is that it still needs to be studied. Um, the history is really that it was, uh, there's good animal data in lots of other um, animal populations in terms of viral uh, decline, in terms of clinical improvement, but not a lot of human data because it really arose in, as a treatment for smallpox and because there wasn't smallpox around uh, the FDA made the leap of faith from animal studies to give FDA approval for smallpox, given the threat. Um, but now in monkeypox, we have, you know, uh, thousands of cases all around the world. Now it presents a golden opportunity to look at it. Um, you know, we could take one of two pathways or three. One is uh, you continue to treat the most severely ill people um, with a very low threshold to give it to them compassionate use. Uh, the second would be to then look at the people with intermediate uh, illness and below, uh, and then study that in a randomized fashion. And then uh, three would be basically to just give it to, to everyone. But I think most people, you know, when you, if you're going to invest in this drug, and because this may become endemic, it, you know, this is the time to really look at that. So, no, so no lot, not, not a lot of great data in humans at all. Would you feel comfortable referring your own patients to a randomized trial um, 
And do you think your patients would accept it or would they uh, seek out um, some other way of getting it? I think the patients who we would not normally treat uh, would probably be fine with a randomized controlled trial. Um, there's some ethical issues. I mean, there is not a lot, lot of countries that have access to this drug. So the other issue would be whether or not uh, you could ethically do a randomized controlled trial, given the paucity of human data, you know, make it a global trial uh, in which, you know, people would participate. I would say right now, uh, because there's so much severe disease treatment with TPOX, it would be very, very difficult to uh, randomize folks in that severe illness category who've been hospitalized, for example. But perhaps a milder patient population, mm -hmm. not near the eye, not, not in someone who's immunosuppressed, for example. Um, so we have a question. I know we had a lot of discussion earlier about rebound, and I think we addressed the primary question that um, rebound does not just occur with Paxlovid treatment, but um, how much have you seen COVID rebound with people who've recovered just after a mild to moderate uh, untreated COVID syndrome? Have you seen people who have just gotten symptomatic care with rebound following recovery? What's people's experience with that? Well, I think that in the trials, it was interesting of Paxlovid in the placebo group, one to 2% of people without Paxlovid, when you check them had rebound. Mm -hmm. And I think we're not checking a lot of people. So they probably is more than meets the eye, but uh, certainly I've had isolated cases of people um, who were hospitalized for a very long period, like the case I presented where they had recurrent symptoms and maybe it wasn't due to just the effects of SARS-CoV-2, but the rebound, the virus was found. Um, so uh, they were typically immune compromised individuals and uh, a few patients that I've seen, but the vast majority, you know, I haven't really seen uh, clinical uh, significant rebound. And again, I think we touched a little bit on this topic, but maybe just expand a little bit more on the use of home antigen testing during, or yes, I guess during rebound um, with or without symptoms. Most of the cases that have been reported and the experience that's been reported, home antigen tests turn positive again after turning negative during Paxlovid rebounds. But um, does if the home antigen test remains positive, what is your recommendation for uh, isolation and quarantine? We heard about the inpatient setting. What about in the outpatient setting? I can start that again and have others chime in. But essentially, the CDC says restart the clock, which I think is really interesting because, you know, together with the data of the maybe lack of efficacy in the general population that's not high risk and certainly vaccinated, et cetera, boosted versus the unvaccinated or high risk and vaccinated um, with minimal effect uh, or, or just a slight, not statistically significant anyway. When you talk to a person who would have normally wanted Paxlovid, who is in the general population, whether or not they would have seeked, seek it, sought it out otherwise, they're afraid of, of getting rebound because it will just be more imprisonment. So that's kind of like a discussion <laughs> in the community right now, because a lot of people prior to this uh, was 
everybody is trying to get Paxlovid, regardless of age or risk, et cetera. So I think the risk benefit changes now, uh, given that specter. I wonder if Dr. Lee might comment, because the study that Dr. Kim showed earlier, where seven people studied um, who had rebound, three of the seven had positive cultures. Some of those cultures stayed positive for a really long time, even more than 10 days. And Right. You know that those people are definitely infectious, or do we just surmise? Uh, I agree with Chin Hong, though. This is really tempering enthusiasm for Paxlovid. Uh, and I think maybe we should not go too far in the other extreme. If someone is older, frail, has risk factors, I think we should put this rebound in context. But do you want to comment, Dr. Lee, about um, antigen or culture positivity and infectivity? Well, um, so that study, we performed with um, a number of collaborators here at MGH and, and Brigham, and including uh, Amy Barzak, who's the head of the, the Reagan Institute Biosafety Level 3 facility, who did all the culture work. And, and in our hands, I would say that I, I would, you know, generally the viral loads um, that lead to are associated with culture positivity is right around five logs. And that's also generally when the antigens start turning you know, either positive or negative, depending on which direction you're going. And so I, we, we do think that there, these individuals are shedding culture positive and infectious virus. Now, you know, whether they're any more or less infectious than, than during acute infection, we can't say for sure. But I do think it, it makes sense that when they do have viral rebound symptoms with positive antigen and, and, and relapse in symptoms, that they re-isolate. Um, to me, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then when, when my patients kind of ask about, about this issue, I say, well, you know, in the end, the Epic HR study showed that this drug had a 90% efficacy in terms of hospitalization to death. And really in the end, that's what we care about. Most of the relapse cases that I've heard about are relatively mild uh, you know, and, and self-limited and no one I know of has been hospitalized um, with it. And so it's, it is a, a bit of a nuisance but in the end, for those who are really high risk, I say, don't worry about the rebound. I mean, obviously, you know, be aware of it, um, but, but really the goal is to prevent you from being hospitalized and, and to have severe illness. I have to think about the way that we evaluate data in the clinical trials. Um, you know, when we look at sort of duration of symptoms or things like that, I wonder if maybe, you know, I can't say this specifically about the Epic SR data, but, you know, is it that what the people that are not the high risk people that we're hearing um, either anecdotally or through, you know, data collection that are having rebound, for example, might have converted their positive test and, and lost most of their symptoms, let's say three days earlier on average than someone who didn't take Paxlovid and then rebounded. And so, you know, maybe on average, they're still having sort of the same degree of, of test positivity and symptoms overall, like if you had checked after eight days, they just declined faster and came back. And so I'm wondering if you sort of look at the overall kind of area under the curve, you just can't detect a difference. It's a different cadence. So I think I'm trying to use that to convince people that, you know, again, that's just a hypothesis because we don't have those specifics, but that, that it's not a danger, that it's not something that we're putting somebody at risk through this rebound. It's just Overall, it's probably a wash in some people who were not high risk to begin with. But as, as Dr. Lee said, you know, for the people who were really using this to, to prevent um, severe outcomes, it's, it's still doing that for them. The last question I can take us back to HIV just for a minute and, and delve into vaccination and people with HIV. We, we heard this morning that the CDC recommends a second booster um, 
for the general population and those over the age of 50. But we also heard some data that people with HIV who have a CD4 count less than 350 um, do have a higher rate of, of breakthrough infection and probably ser serious disease. Should we be vaccinating our HIV positive individual, our, our patients with HIV who are under the age of 50 with a second booster if their CD4 count is less than 350? What would you advise? What would anyone of you advise your a patient who's CD4 counts less than 350? Connie, you're shrugging your shoulders. I, or recommend, the answer? <laughs> I recommend that we that they get boosted regardless of age if they have a, a lower CD4 count. So um, I don't follow the greater than 50 age cutoff for my population with HIV. Anyone else have comments? I completely agree with you. I mean, I mean, the there's also other factors, even independent of CD4 count, the syndemic of uh, vulnerable population that makes that age, um, you know, cut off somewhat arbitrary um, when you think about it. So, uh, you know, I agree with you, Connie. Uh, I, yeah. you know, I would have a low threshold for recommending that for particularly for somebody with low T cells. And, and they also have the multiple comorbidity issues, the social determinants of health issues are all overrepresented in our HIV population. So I think there's multiple reasons to recommend boosting um, in those individuals, regardless of age. Well, you heard it here first, but I think that's a very um, cogent um, um, recommendation. Okay, there's a question for, I guess, uh, Dr. Evering, would you treat the um, depression as a sign of long COVID with SSRIs or regardless of whether they had pre-existing depression prior to COVID, would you treat that depression? You're, you're muted, so could maybe unmute your microphone. Yeah, there. sorry about that. <laughs> There are tools and a diagnostic pathway using the DSM to diagnose depression. Um, and so, yes, irrespective of um, how we think they may have come to this point, if we're diagnosing depression, that is, that would be uh, improved with treatment. I think that if an SSRI is, is in the pathway, that would be a reasonable approach. But again, I, I think that when we're focusing on the symptom-based approach to care, um, we have to make sure that we have the right definitions for what we're treating, but I think that sounds very reasonable in the appropriate patient. Well, we are 10 seconds away from the, our end time, so I think we will stop with our uh, Q&A and discussion and move on to closing. <laughs>